0: Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, take your Bibles this morning and open them with me. I'm going to be in three different passages this morning one will be in Ephesians chapter four Ephesians four and then the other will be in first Thessalonians chapter four and then chapter five too but that'll just be a page turn over so if you go to four you'll be ready for five If you are new to LifePoint or if you've been here for a while, we haven't done this in a while, so if you've been around for a while but you're ready to kind of take another step, you want to find out more about our church, you want to just kind of figure out who we are, next Sunday at 1230 we'll do Explore LifePoint in the north facility here in the multi-purpose room and we just want to take a few moments going to introduce you to some of our leadership talk a little bit about our vision we'll answer any questions that you have we would love to have you join us it'll take about 40 45 minutes and uh, won't take too much of your time but want to minister to you in that way and help you connect and engage with us as a church by understanding more about what we are all about well I want to Start with a, a, a brief story today. Uh, in 1924, a man by the name of Eric Little ran in the Olympics in Paris, France. And Eric was a Scotsman and was one of the fastest individuals at that time. Well, obviously, he won the Olympics in his heat or in his uh, field, so he, he was the fastest. That I guess goes without saying. But in 1981, there was a movie made about him. When I say this movie, if it hasn't already happened, you're going to immediately hear a song begin to play in your head. The name of the movie is Chariots of Fire. Nah, nah, nah. And if I could have found that, I would have had you start playing it. I just missed an opportunity there, didn't I? In the movie Chariots of Fire, it covers the story of his life and, and all of the things surrounding um, that time. Um, and, and that situation. And he was a, he was a godly person. Um, and gave his life very much to uh, serving the Lord. But he made a statement towards the end. <clears throat> and he said this. He said, I believe God made me for a purpose. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel His pleasure. That's a powerful statement. Let me turn it to us for just a moment and ask you this. When you were working this week, did you feel God's pleasure on you? Did you sense a presence of your Creator and your Redeemer that was with you in in the labor and the work with which you were doing? Let me ask it another way. Have you ever sensed God's pleasure on you in your work? Do do you even think that God is the least bit worried or cares about your work? We may need to begin there. You see, I want you to understand that God cares deeply about your labor because He created you to do and to cultivate good in the world by your work. And our salvation in Jesus Christ joins us with God's work of redemption by our labor in the world. And so as we can continue this series in our citizen Christian, today I want to turn and I want to look at labor and economics, labor and economics. Now, in interest of full disclosure, we will do very little in the field of economics because, well... I'm not an economistician. And I think you're convinced of that now. But next to our family and our home, our work is the principal expression of our public witness as we labor for good in this world. And I think we don't probably talk about this enough I'm not sure I've ever preached on a theology of work or labor or anything of that nature. But here's what I want to leave you with today. Christ followers labor as the imago dei, the image of God, to cultivate good for all and glory to God on the earth as a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. You see, all people are created in God's image. That's the reason that we hold the conviction of the fundamental value for life for all people as Christians. Why? Because all people are created in the imago dei. But those who've been redeemed in Jesus Christ bring a particular Glory! You see, I want us to understand that as Christian citizens, our work is not just a good for the world, but it is an expression of God's good in the world that we are cultivating by our work. And and people cultivating for the good becomes a foundation for the economic health and thriving in the world. God wants good for all people to thrive in the world, and, and His people to thrive in order to point others to Jesus Christ. You see, a theology of work and its relationship to economics is important because when Christians obey God, it distinguishes their labor and their production in the world both for their individual provision, but also for their generosity in how they bless others by their life. But it also, listen, this is the redemptive aspect of our life in Jesus Christ where He returns the glory potential to His people in salvation. We are redeemed, value returned for what? To bear His glory. So for us, we bear a faithful witness to Jesus Christ through our labor as Christians. And I want you to understand What you were created and what you have been redeemed for. That God desires for you to know his pleasure when in obedience to him you work to do and to cultivate good in the earth. Now I want to run at this by identifying four aspects that outline the value of work. So in some ways, I am drawing from a theology of work that we're not going to take the time to walk through today, but I'm going to draw from that and bring the application of their value. And as I look at these four aspects and outline the value of work, I want to do so for the personal dignity and godly productivity. So I'm appealing to us to be productive people for the glory of God. But I'm also appealing to it to be a people who, through the value of our work in the world, declare a public witness by cultivating good to bless other people. You see, doing good, paying it forward, you might say, which is a phrase often heard today, is not an original idea to this generation. It originated in the one who created us to do good. And to cultivate good in the world, even for the good of others and the provision of self. The first aspect I want you to see of the value of work is this. Work demonstrates the nature and the character of God. This is the first value of work for those of us who live in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That our work demonstrates the nature and the character of God. Genesis 1-1 teaches the first two characteristics of God in the first four words. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. First of all, by implication, the very way that Moses begins writing Genesis 1-1 is the implication, the inference that God is eternal. So immediately, the first characteristic of God we learn from Genesis is that God is eternal. And the second is not only by implication, but by action, He works. God is the eternally working one. And this frames all of our understanding through an introduction of who he is. You see, throughout the days of creation, we see both God's majesty and the magnitude of his work. We see it in the infinite of its scope and the intimacy of its detail. And at the apex of his creation, he culminates his work in a creature like himself, the imago dei. And that creature has the capacity to work in likeness of God by their work. So God commands this creature to work in his whole creation as God has worked to build the creation. And so Genesis teaches that God created people in His image to reflect His character and nature through their work. The first value of work is this. Our work to do good demonstrates the nature and the character of God. The second value of work that I want us to see today is that work is a faithful expression of our identity for worship, both in creation and in redemption. It's a faithful expression of our identity. Go to Ephesians 4. Sorry, I gave you the wrong verse. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4 first. I gave them to you out of order. I didn't give you the wrong verse. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to back up into the middle of 10 and begin reading. Paul writes, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So here it is. We see that work is a faithful expression of our identity for worship, both in creation and in redemption. You see, Paul is instructing the Thessalonians on how it is we live a holy life. We're towards the end of Paul's letter, and in the second half of his letter, the first half, he builds a theological basis for us to understand our salvation. The second half of his letters, he builds a faithful application of how it is we live out our understanding of what God has done. And he says this, that work is a practice of holiness for two reasons, for a faithful witness and a full provision for self. You see, Christians are commanded to model a life for God, both that we are created to work in his creation and we are recreated to walk with him in his creation. This makes work, friends, an integral part of our identity for good in creation and to serve God's redemptive mission in the world. And so the Christian must understand that our identity is expressed through our work to fulfill God's creational command and to bear a faithful witness of our salvation in Jesus. You see, God establishes our identity as people created for what? For worship and for work. That's what he's getting at here. And it's been this way since Genesis 1 and 2, before Genesis 3. When sin enters the picture. So work predates sin. Worship and work are not separate aspects, but they are two expressions to glorify God and to multiply His glory on the earth. Work serves as an act of worship when it expresses a faithful witness to God by a dependency of faith in Him. You see, our work demonstrates our walk with God, which is what? It's a definition of worship, right? That's what Paul says. So you can walk faithfully before outsiders. So our work demonstrates that, but it also brings us to adjoin with God in His working in the world, which is what? That's His mission. That's the redemption of God at work. But our work also demonstrates our worship in how we work and by what we do with our work. Listen to me, friends. You must not walk into the office, the shop, wherever you go with a different mindset or a different motivation and labor differently than you walk into the sanctuary to worship. Can't do that. You're creating a division of life that God does not acknowledge. For the posture of your heart for worship must be applied to your work so that the labor of your work can be applied as an act of your worship. I'm going to repeat that for you. The posture of your heart for worship must be applied to your work so that the labor of your work can be applied as an act of your worship. You see, the purpose of worship is for the place of work, and the purpose of work is for the place of worship. You can't ignore God in your work and question why His blessing never rests on you in your work. God doesn't bless what's not been offered to Him. You can't cheat your boss or cheat your employees and think that God will ignore it or overlook it in your worship. God doesn't pour out His love. He doesn't pour out His Spirit on those who only intend to hoard it and use it for their own means. A bad attitude is a false testimony. There's nothing miserable about God. I remember when my brother-in-law, it's easier for me to tell stories on him about how he learned this than it is to bear a personal testimony of these things. But I remember the year after he graduated college, his fiance at the time was completing her college degree. And so he didn't want to spend money, he wanted to save, so he went home, he got a job back in Memphis and lived with his parents. He was absolutely miserable. He wanted to go into some kind of business and finance, but he wasn't sure what. So he got a job with a tool-making company, and he was basically selling hardware, screws. Screws and fasteners and that kind of stuff. Came home miserable every day. And I remember just a few months in, uh, Kristen's parents relaying to us that, uh, Kristen, your father has had to have a talk with your brother. Oh really? Yes. He comes home every night from work and makes the whole house miserable. And finally his dad sat down with him and said look, this may not be the job you're going to do the rest of your life but it matters how you do this job tomorrow and every day after that. And if you don't like it, you can find something else and you probably will find something else. But when you go back to work tomorrow the way you go to work says something about who you go to work for. Now My brother-in-law has done very well for himself. He's a director of finance for a major private institution in Alabama. And he's done very well. But I tell you, that little talk is critical for us in our own maturity. Bad attitudes of false testimony because there's nothing miserable about God. And this is fundamental to our identity of how it is we love God and how it is we love others. There's no dormant form of God that, that doesn't work. By God's design, worship and work are not identical, but they are inseparable. And worship and work together establishes our witness before outsiders by how it is we walk before God. And you see, worship fuels our work because in all you do, you always work for the Lord. And work forms our witness because the ethic of your work is your worship in the public realm. Paul says, work for self-provision. That's what he says. So that you might walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You see work is not a denial of God, though it is often used in this way. Surely work is a principal idolatry in our day and time, but work fundamentally is designed to demonstrate our trust for our own provision from God himself. Provision is an essential aspect of our work in God's creational design for people to 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 work the land, to to exercise the dominion that God has bestowed upon us. One author said, The Bible is clear when it speaks of one's command to strive to be self sufficient. For if it says this, for even when we were with you, we commanded you, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. You see, laboring for our provision is not saying that I am sufficient, but that By obedience to God in my work, he proves sufficient for me. So God created people to be self-sufficient in the world. Now some want to argue identity is not found in your work. And while identity is not inherent in your job, it is decisively inherent in our work. Be careful not to define your work only by your job. But be vigilant not to dismiss the role of your work. You see, our created identically our, excuse me, our created identity is intrinsically bound up in our work. And when we are refused the opportunity to work, it strips a good from us, both in the glory of public worship and the dignity of self-provision. And so by creational command and purpose. God designed work as a principal expression of a person's identity. Work is a faithful expression of our identity for worship, both in creation and in redemption. The third aspect of the value of work is that work bears the truth and the goodness of the gospel into the brokenness of sin in the world It bears the truth and the goodness of the gospel into the brokenness of sin in the world. Turn back with me to Ephesians 4 now in verse 28. And Paul again is instructing them on on their theology put into practice. And he says this, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, according to Paul, a poor work ethic is as much a false witness towards God as theft. Think about this for a moment. And what is theft? Well, it's, it's the Eighth Commandment. This is significant, friends. This is one of the ways that we not only obey God, but we avoid disobedience to God. You see, laziness tells a lie about God. Mooching and freeloading slanders God's very name. Apathy says God doesn't care about others. Passivity says God enjoys others' pain. Busyness without productivity says that God is inept. It's a lack of integrity because God it states that God is not true to himself. A weak work ethic denies God's created intention for life. As I said, a bad attitude says God's not good. A failure to work bears a false witness to Jesus Christ. And as Paul says to Timothy, when one fails to provide for his own, it is equal to a denial of the faith. To bear his image as Christ-like imitators of God, Christians must reflect the one they worship in the way they work. Listen, friends, work is hard because sin is real. That's what Genesis 3 teaches us. But the hardness of our work is not something other than us in its fault. Rather, the hardness of our work is in direct correlation to the hardness of our heart from sin. Remember that? Work itself is not sin nor sinful, and sin doesn't darken nor diminish the role of work in creation. Work is purposeful and redemptive activity that produces good and cultivates good among others and for others. And so, bearing God's image by our work against the brokenness of sin in the world says, you know what, there's a greater purpose for what I'm doing. It bears a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. By God's design, work holds a number of benefits for our life. And instead of breaking God's command and stealing, as we just said, a strong work ethic labors to produce good, which begins with the provision for oneself. And work for provision holds positive results in its production, but also positive outcome in its prevention. One author states, the instruction to do honest work prohibits immoral and life-destroying work. And the purpose clause at the end of Ephesians 4.28 shows that we are not to be working merely for self, but for the good of others. The basic idea, he says, can be captured in in, in one word, integrity. You see, work ethic is a critical factor in our integrity to do according to what we say we believe. Work produces good as it provides a host of benefit for our life. But the greatest of all is that out of the honesty with self we have, so it is that we can share with others. You see, what we know the Bible to teach about work should inform us in the conviction that we hold and how it should function in the world. But I tell you today, we're losing serious ground in our culture. In 2019, YouGov did a poll, 70% of people between the ages of 23 to 38 years old said that they would be willing to vote for a socialist, a self-proclaimed socialist. And I want to address this because I want to encourage any who may be so inclined to think that that is a legitimate economic strategy. And I'll tell you why. I'm not talking politics here, I'm talking theology. And I want you to understand that. Socialism is an evil against a holy God because it steals from those who produce to give to those who, listen to me, will not. I'm not talking about the cannots, I'm talking about the will nots. And it puts itself in the place to act like. God, this does not deny that people need help and that we can corporately or structure help for those who need it. That's not a denial of that. It's actually quite the opposite. It does oppose government though becoming or posturing themselves as a source of livelihood as a substitute of personal provision. Socialism always focuses the eyes of the person who's going to receive on those who are richer than them in what it promises, but it always delivers like those who are less than you in what it provides. Sound like anything? It is the temptation of sin put into an economic strategy. It actually fosters coveting and covetousness. And what socialism tangibly provides, whether in service or goods, to the one that does not have, it strips the dignity both from the one it takes from and the dignity from the one that it actually gives to. Socialism is broke before it begins because it strips the imago dei from the individual both that it takes from and that it gives to for the advancement and to denial their productivity as well as through the denial of opportunity to bless others by their productivity. It strips the opportunity for people to provide for themselves and to bless others through their provision. The only person or persons that benefit from socialism is the redistributor. And the one who is bent to never produce good, who according to the Bible should be starving anyway. Socialism is not about economics, friend. It's about domination. We'll control your money for you. And it always leads in one direction. If you disagree with us, then we'll take up the guns and we'll take it from you. It doesn't move backwards. Some want to use Acts chapter 2 and 4 and the model of the church's shared community for the biblical justification for socialism. Socialism. Absolutely not. Not even close. Acts chapter 2 and 4 is the church's mandate to practice godly generosity and hospitality. The Bible is clear. People labor to cultivate good and to bless others out of what they produce. And that which is commonly held in Acts 2 and 4 is a collective product because it's been willingly offered, not taken So you've built the person in providing and you've received as you've cultivated generosity. And socialism is an evil against the created design of an all-wise, glorious, holy God. I'm way over time, but I'm going to give these illustrations. I never give a dollar or I never round up at the register for a cause. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm not condemning you if if you do. I'm just telling you I don't do that. Why? I also take every tax break legally allowable that I can find. I look for loopholes. Why wouldn't you? Right? Because I don't need a corporation and I don't need the government dispersing the good that I produce by my labors. Now, if there is an organization at the checkout, which occasionally there is, and you can give a dollar directly to them, I'm not telling you not to be generous. But when a corporation lauds their generosity to the community, and all they've really done is not necessarily take from their profits, but allow people to bolster their generosity, I'm not in favor of that. And I'm not in favor of the government stripping the good and the dignity from people. Now, I'm thankful for business models that intentionally invest profits for good. As long as it's not a subpar product or service that's offered at a bloated cost. That's not good for anybody. That's no bueno. And listen, I didn't learn this from Tom, I didn't learn it from Bob, and I didn't learn it from Dan. I'll let you figure out those later if you need to. I learned it from Lawrence and Donna. My parents owned a Christian bookstore for 21 years. And the first principle of my dad's business philosophy was that he would tithe off the store's revenue, the gross revenue. My dad was a pastor first in all things. Uh, He never never made it. He wasn't in business for business. He was in business for ministry. So there's a whole lot of stuff I know going on there. And I'm not telling you what you have to do. I'm just telling you where I learned this from. People came into my parents' bookstore. They bought books and they bought Bibles. They bought music gifts and all the things that they taught. Many came for personal encouragement. They're at the register in the aisles. My dad, on a regular basis, would be found in the aisles giving biblical or theological training as he talked about the books that they could buy and what book would offer this and what book would offer that or the kind of Bible that they were going to buy. And often I would come in and they would say, Lane, don't go in the back. Your parents are back there with somebody. And for hours on end, my mom or my dad would be sitting back in the office giving counsel to somebody who just needed some help in life. You see, the good that was produced and shared through that bookstore is a testimony to Jesus Christ. It provided a lot of good for our family. But far beyond that is what it said to a whole community. About Christ, When Christians labor to produce good by their work, God compounds your influence far more than you ever could. Work bears the truth and the goodness of the gospel before the brokenness of sin in the world. And the fourth value is this, that work is our means to cultivate goodness, righteousness, and justice in the world. 1 Thessalonians, go back there, chapter 5, look with me at verses 14 and 15. 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Paul counsels again the Thessalonians, cultivate work among you as an essential aspect of your godliness in life. God created people to thrive in this world through their work because He put us here as His chief regents. And sin made work painful and and hard and toilsome and frustrating, but it did not remove God's creational design for it, nor can it diminish its redemptive impact by Christians. When we work as unto the Lord, we cultivate God's goodness, we cultivate His righteousness, we cultivate His justice in creation. Why? Because we are cultivating the dignity of humanity. We're, we're laboring for the Imago day to come to its full fruition and maturity with every moving generation. When we labor as unto the Lord, we're cultivating in several forms. As Jeremiah said, we're seeking the welfare of the city. We're, We're producing good among ourselves so that it can overflow to other people and we can help people. So that we can point them to Jesus Christ. And as we labor to do good, we in our and through our labors, we're seeking justice. We're correcting oppression. We're bringing justice to the fatherness. And we're pleading the cause of the widow. And we're bringing God's goodness into the world. This is the very essence of the gospel. As Galatians says, remember the poor. How? In your mind? Yes. In your prayers? Yes. With your pocketbook? Yes. Yes, why? Because you're cultivating good to be able to remember them. Our faithful labor blesses others by equipping and readying us to live generously and to live justly. And so work is a means to cultivating goodness, righteousness, and justice in the world. Christ followers labor as the imago dei. This is not inconsequential. Because we are cultivating good for all and glory to God on the earth as a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. Listen to me, Christian. When you labor as the Imago Dei, you should sense the pleasure of God on you. When you're operating in your sweet spot, you ought to have a sense that this is what God made me for. And there are any number of things that you'll have to do at work that will not make you feel the quote-unquote pleasure of God. But as you bring those things in, there ought to be something you're doing. In your job, or because of what your job affords you, or because you no longer have to have a job, you can. You find that sweet spot. You find the essence of that imago dei, and you give it your all. That's why you are here. And through it, you live to bless the socks off of everyone you can. Let's pray.